But she started telling me stories. And for the first time, I heard how when she was 10, she saw a 13, 14-year-old boy being beaten by soldiers. And that was the first time in her life she understood the meaning of the word hate. And I'm sitting there at the kitchen table and hearing this and feeling like somebody just kicked me in the gut. There's an event. And then what happens is you have to figure out how to respond. That is very different than COVID, where the crisis kept evolving. It's like you didn't have one event and say, okay, how are we going to deal with it? What happens is you're dealing with the event, and then the next day something changes in the event. Organizations and workplace event organizers or whatever have a really big responsibility to stop this assumption that everybody drinks. It just has to stop. It actually has to stop. It's utterly ridiculous. That just cannot carry on. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast, hosted by Andy Lapata, the show where Andy and his guests explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Hello, and welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. I'm Andy Lapata. Thank you very much for joining me. First of all, the big news, all being well and everything going to schedule, this is episode number 200 of the Connected Leadership Podcast. Not only is it episode number 200, but we are celebrating three years of the podcast this month. So a double celebration. But it's a celebration we're going to mark with sparkling water, uh, given my guest on today's podcast. Uh, She's a voice many people in the UK will recognise and will be as familiar as a family member. Uh, She was a co-presenter on the much-loved Steve Wright in the Afternoon Show uh, on BBC Radio 2 for over two decades. She's also a former pop star, had a top 10 hit in her own right, uh, as well as touring as a singer with many of the icons of the 1980s. Today, her focus is on encouraging people to address the alcoholic elephant in the room, encouraging people to live a life without booze. And that's why we're celebrating with sparkling water today. As alcohol is often seen as the glue in professional as well as personal relationships, I thought it would be something that would be important for us to explore further. How do you build relationships without that glue of uh, connecting over drinks. I, I was running a workshop yesterday, and one of the questions that came up was, how do I build connections remotely because I don't have the chance to meet for a beer after work? Well, even when people aren't remote, they don't necessarily want to meet for a beer after work. And access and inclusivity means that everyone should have that chance to build relationships, not just like those that like a drink. So that's what we're going to explore today with Janie Lee Grace. So Janie, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. Well, we've been trying to get this happening for quite a long time. (laughs) I'm delighted we are. And what a great guest to mark 200 episodes with as well. Yeah, well Um, done you. It's a thing, isn't it? I I think I'm nearly at 250. I can't believe it on my podcast. Where has that time gone? Fantastic. Well, I don't always ask this question and it's not what we're focusing on. So why don't you start by telling us what your podcast is and where people can find it? Yeah, so the podcast is called Alcohol Free Life, and it's really a, a well-being podcast, really. I interview lots of amazing authors and inspirational sober heroes, and we talk about all different aspects of well-being, and you can find it everywhere you find podcasts and at thesoberclub.com. Great stuff. Okay, we'll talk about your journey to advocating for being alcohol-free shortly. Let's talk about your career before that a little bit first. I mentioned in the introduction that 
listeners in the UK may well know you for your work with Steve Wright, but mm. you also had quite a career before that. So let's start with your pop career, yeah. your life as a singer. Tell us a little bit yeah. more about that, who you work with, how that came about. Sure. So my first job as a backing singer was with Mary Wilson and the Wilsations. So some oh, of wonderful. you will remember Mary with the <laughs> fabulous Beehive and the hit Just What I Always Wanted. So that was fantastic fun because there were 11 of us squished into a minibus touring Europe. <laughs> <laughs> did you have beehives in the minibus? Because I no, could no. Them she, well, the, she the did, room. she did, and it was always always fun because we had to be really careful. That's yeah. true. Um, but no, we were we we just had uh, big hair. Uh, myself and uh, the other backing singer, who was in fact Julia Fordham, who many people will oh, know, really? of course. Yeah, yeah went on yeah. to amazing things. Played my university when I was there. Did she? Yeah. yeah. Well, oh God, we used to do just about every uni. It was great fun. <laughs> So I was with Mary for a good long time. And then my next gig of note was with Wham. And it really came about when they literally just hit the charts and needed to put together a tour. And, you know, when I think back, it's amusing, really. It still amuses me that I heard that they were putting together a tour, managed to get hold of the tour manager and say, look, can I come and audition? You know, you're looking for backing singers. And it was all very kind of messy at the time. They weren't quite sure who they were hiring. It was all very early stages. So I went down and met the MD and did an audition. And he said, you know, well, I think you're great, but I think that the guys are being advised to have a, a vocal section who are already kind of working as a section. So we've got Kokomo coming in soon. Of course, they were very well known vocal section. So I said, okay. So I thought quickly and said, well, you know, obviously I'm here on my own today, but, you know, I do work as part of a section and we work together all the time because I was absolutely talking out my backside. But he said, oh, okay, great. Bring them down. So I kind of got home and frantically rang, you know, other session singers and said, right, okay, let's rehearse by phone. And um, and for God's sake, let's pull some harmonies together and pretend we're a section. So we did. And that's how we got the gig. So yeah, that was really amazing. And I got to do all of their tours, including China, which again, it seems like a different life really, because mm. you know, that gig in China, we were the very first Western band to play China. And it was before all the changes. I mean, yeah, really, I when you it, think yeah. about it, my God, it really was incredible. So yeah, it's very lucky that I got to do so, all of that. Great fun. So let me ask you, first of all, admission. I don't think many people are aware of this about me. I can still do every word to Young Guns. Oh, can uh, you? So I, I hope can, you can do I'm the not, moves as well. <laughs> I'm, I'm not so sure about that. the moves. I'm not sure I ever did the moves. Uh, but I can still still go through every single word and sing along every word of Young Guns. That's um, funny. I mean, people are going to shoot me if I don't ask what was it like working with George Michael? It was absolutely amazing. I mean, they were young, just started out, let's not forget, you know, and just an absolute joy to work with, really. And I think it was only kind of over time that it started to dawn on everybody just how unbelievably talented George was. I, I mean, the honest truth is, you know, the, the tracks were great. Of course they were. But I don't think any of us realized until a little further down the line that he was producing everything himself. He did all his own backing vocals on the recordings. Mm. Very annoying for us, <laughs> I can tell you. <laughs> you know, he did all his own harmonies, everything. And I think, you know, sort of over time, everyone started to realise, oh, this is something more, this is something else. But yeah, just really lovely guys. We had we had great fun. It was a really fun time. And you also work with people like, I think you work with 
boy George and yeah, and that was a bit, a bit later. Well. Yeah, I, I worked with George kind of a bit later on, not the Culture Club era at all. Later, when he had his own record label and he was doing stuff on his own. But yeah, I, I loved working George. I've always thought George was really underrated as a songwriter, and he's a fantastic guitarist and a fantastic songwriter. So yeah, I loved working with him. It was great. There, there's a Culture Club unplugged album mm-hmm. that came out on the reunion a few years ago and i think that really shows how that good shows the songs it, yeah. really were yeah yeah, I'm, yeah. I, I'm a great believer if you strip anything back to acoustics exactly you see how exactly good a song that. it is exactly yeah. Yeah. And you had your own top 10 hit as well. How yeah, was well, so yeah, that was fantastic fun. Although at the time, I don't know if I even stopped to really enjoy it, you know, to be honest. I was just, you know, just doing sessions, doing vocal sessions and all the rest of it. And then I got a call from the guys in St. Etienne to say, can you come and do a session? It's just an hour's gig. Uh, hour and a half's gig, you know. And I always remember that it took me longer to get there. I had to get to Surrey or something. It took me two and a half hours to get there on the train. I was in the studio for, I don't know, 45 minutes, best part of 45 minutes on account of it's only four words and a bit of ad-libbing. And two and a half back hours back on the train. And then, you know, that was it as far as we were concerned. And then the story goes, and to this day, I'll never know if it's 100% true, but the story goes that they released it. It was always just meant to be a dance track. And of course, it was vinyl. You know, we're talking 91. So they released what they call an acetate, which is a test version of the vinyl, released it to DJs to try it out on the clubs and see whether it filled the dance floor, you know, whether it was going to fly. So they did this 12-inch acetate, gave it to a bunch of DJs, and one of them was a guy in Scotland, which, of course, Scotland was massive for raves. I mean, massive. So they gave it to this guy in Scotland. It totally rocked the floor. So he bootlegged the acetate and sold 500 copies out the back of his car. (laughs) So that's the story. And suddenly, within three weeks... Every record company wanted to sign it, but there was no band, right? So they're like, oh, okay, well, do you want to front it? Okay. <laughs> so it was literally throw it against the wall, see if it sticks. And in all my years in the music industry, I've never, ever seen anything move so fast. We were literally, within eight weeks, we were on top of the pops at number eight. And that's unheard of yeah, in the music industry. Yeah. Yeah, that's without all the pluggers and, and everything yeah. that goes behind it. Yeah, was, exactly. It, it was literally yeah. because they'd seen it fly in the clubs. The yeah. timing was right. You know, it was the summer of love. <laughs> and yeah, it just flew. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, and then you moved into radio with Steve right now. 23 years together there must have been a lot of highlights but what stands out yeah well just to say I'd already been working in radio I was a a DJ on Virgin Radio for six years before I went to Radio 2 I went to Radio 2 and I had my own early morning show on a Saturday for six months to a year or something and then heard that Steve was going to be doing starting afternoons and that's when I introduced myself to Steve and got that gig and uh, yeah I, I mean I only know it's that amount of time because I was pregnant soon after and I know how old my son is otherwise I'd have said oh it must have been about 10 years because honestly <laughs> god where does time go yeah it was amazing I mean highlights it's just it's, it's, it's a difficult one isn't it every day we had fun really I mean obviously I've gotten to meet pretty much all the celebs and famous people that anyone would want to meet. I suppose the highlights for me are the people that I really love personally, you know. So I'm a massive fan of Eddie Izzard and um, Eddie Izzard used to come in quite regularly. (laughs) And the first three times he came in, I was off having babies. (laughs) 
<laughs> I was literally <laughs> off work having babies. And then he eventually. Must have taken it personally. Yeah, exactly. Eventually, I was going to be around when he was coming in. I was really nervous because, you know, they always say, don't meet heroes, right? Don't do that. I was so nervous. But he was great. I love meeting Eddie. And, you know, I'm a massive fan of Russell Brand. So I got to meet him lots of times. And I love Coldplay. And we got to meet Chris. So I guess it's for me, it's all those personal things. But there, there were many amazing highlights. I mean, we got to do some shows in New York, which was fantastic. You know, really incredible stuff. We got to do like little things like going to anniversaries of at EastEnders set and, you know, interviewing Barbara Windsor and people like that. So, yeah, there were just so many, so many great memories, really. Just to get professional for a moment and remember what this podcast is all about, when you're in that type of position, there are two sides of the equation to look at. One is for you when you are meeting people of that standard, and I know people who know me are going to be laughing at the moment and waiting for me to make a Coldplay reference <laughs> because it's well known how much I loathe Coldplay. Oh, do you? Oh, how funny. Oh, oh, I, it's on you, my bio. It's Marmite, it isn't it? Is. You either love them or yeah. hate them. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, yeah, uh, get that completely. Uh, but when you're dealing with people who are your idols and you need something from them or you need to reach out, you need to follow up, how do you approach that? And how do you get that balance between respecting the level they've reached in the industry and talking to them as a peer or talking to them without uh, fawning all over them? Mm. Um, and, and also when people reach out to you because you're on a national high profile show and they need something, um, what really grated uh, against you and what, what worked for you? Because this is transferable to people who want to engage with more senior people with them and build relationships that are going to help them in their career or in their role. Mm. I mean, it's a difficult one, really. I'm trying to think when I may have done that in the past. I, I think you've got to gauge how approachable someone is. They either are or they aren't. And usually they'll make it clear if they are. And I think there's been a few times in the past where someone may have actually said to me, listen, here's my personal number. I'm happy for you to call me. Or here's my email address. Call me personally. Or here's my manager. Give them a call direct. And in those instances, you know, it's fine, right? I think if you haven't had that interaction, then it's pretty safe to assume that you're probably not going to get anywhere. <laughs> so I don't know that I've ever bothered, really. In terms of people approaching me, yeah, I mean, it happens, it certainly used to happen absolutely all the time. And again, it's a really difficult one. I'm the kind of person that I absolutely love connecting other people. I love helping people if I can. You know, how would I have ever got started if somebody hadn't given me the name of the God, I'm tour manager, right? Everybody needs a break, right? I mean, it sounds really blatant and obvious, but ask nicely. <laughs> ask nicely <laughs> and don't assume. And I, I think the, the most frustrating thing for me over the years when I was with Steve was the emails I got from people saying, you know, maybe it would be, oh, I met you years ago or or I like listening to you on the radio or whatever. I've got a track out or, you know, my son's got a track out. So I'd really like you to play it on the radio. And it's like, well, what, why, how and why might I be able to do that? That is not going to happen. Don't take it personally. You know, you, you've got to go through the usual channels and there ain't nothing I can do other than point you in the direction of where you might want to post it, which you could probably find yourself. You know, So I guess it's just don't have ridiculous expectations, actually. <laughs> but by the same token, some people will absolutely give you a leg up if it doesn't cost them anything. You know, kindness is good for you, isn't it? And if it doesn't actually cost them anything, 
then most people actually want to be they they want to help you if they can i i, th- I think that's a, a great answer because it's got everything in it it's got that recognition of giving back and paying it forward but equally you know managing your expectation and understanding the position that other person is in mm. i think when we first met many years ago i had book out and you were on a national radio station but i thought well why would janie promote my book we've only just met and I never asked because I didn't feel that that was appropriate at the time. You build the relationship and then if it's natural, you do. And other books wouldn't have been appropriate. So I didn't ask. And I think it's that. And you invest in the relationship and build it. Mm-hmm. But thank you. I think that's useful for people and that's very transferable. Let's talk about what you're doing now. And I do think this is an important topic in terms of relationship building, as I said in the introduction. As I mentioned, a lot of your focus now is on encouraging people to stop drinking. You've got a TEDx talk, which 11 minutes long, well worth people checking out. And one of the things that struck me when I watched that is you talk about how alcohol has become normalized. Mm. So let's let's look at your own journey first. What led to you going alcohol free? That's one thing. And I've done that a few times over the course of my life. I've taken a year without alcohol mm-hmm. and I don't drink very much at all these days. But then you went a step further and made it really the center point of who you are now, certainly mm. professionally. And you compact campaign very visibly about it. So what was your journey to there? Well, I think that the the irony is that for years, alongside my kind of radio work and singing work, I've become known for health and well-being. You know, that's been my topic. I've written five books on holistic living. I had a number one Amazon bestseller. I have a website, which I still run, called Imperfectly Natural, which I don't sell anything. I just give recommendations for natural products. I run an awards ceremony every year called the Platinum Awards, where I recognize the best in natural products. So, And I do loads and loads of talks around the UK. So for years and years, I mean, at least 16 years since my first book came out, I've been known as this kind of queen of holistic living, right? And everything, you know, from from organic food and cleaning your home without chemicals and natural skincare and beauty and mother and baby products and therapies and treatments and spirituality and meditation and you name it, you know, I've been talking about it or trying to find out more about it or looking at new products. And, you know, it's really been my absolute life. And yet (laughs) throughout all of that, I was stepping around this huge elephant in the room that was alcohol. And somehow, with all well-being and holistic this and that, I seem to think that downing best part of a bottle of wine a night was perfectly okay. Now, thankfully, my website was called Imperfectly Natural, or I would have been lynched. But at the time, you know, I was just doing what everyone else did. I was a busy mum. I've got four kids. I'm working. I've got a lot going on. Of course, if I've got half an hour to myself at the end of the day, of course, I want a, in inverted commas, reward. So that means, you know, a nice cold glass of some, you know, some thing around at the local deli, which is very quickly quickly followed by a second glass. And then when you get home, I mean, well, you're cooking dinner, right? So got to drink while you're cooking dinner. And then, oh, friends have popped around. Well, obviously, you've got to sit out on the patio with a glass of wine. I mean, it would be rude not to. And before you know it, you've downed a bottle. And it took a long time before I had any realization of what I was doing. But over time, I started to realize there's something really odd here. I was waking up at 3 a.m., pretty much every day. And, you know, I'd lie there with the ceiling spinning and and a voice would say to me, what are you doing? What the hell is this? It's a Tuesday night. You know, you can't even count how many drinks you had yesterday because you went to lunch as well. 
And this is not okay. This is not authentic. It's not who you're meant to be. Stop it. I'd have that conversation with myself every single middle of the night, right? And then, you know, I joke in my TED talk that I kind of, I'd make a deal with God and say, look, please, if you just let me not have a hangover, because I had a really busy day, I promise I won't drink again. And then God would keep his side of the bargain. I never did get hangover because such was my tolerance, my poor body. But then by six o'clock the next night, the wine witch would be in my ear saying, oh, don't be so ridiculous. What do you mean? What do you mean you're not going to drink? Don't say, God, I'm boring. Have one. You can have one. You know, you're a relatively intelligent person. You can stop after one. But of course I couldn't. So I was caught in that alcohol trap. And I think it's really important to stress that I was never at rock bottom. So I wasn't what you would call clinically dependent. And it's really important to stress that, I think. I aim all of the work that I do now at people who would term themselves, if they knew the term, a grey area drinker. And that's because I believe it's a spectrum. You have got people who are at rock bottom. For them, it's dangerous to stop suddenly. They can't just stop. They're, They're clinically dependent. They need support and help. But then there's everybody else. And they're allegedly happy social drinkers. And every now and then they can't hold their beer, you know. But we have this perception in the UK that there's just two types of drinkers. The ones at rock bottom who need help everybody else and they're all completely fine. And it's not true. But when you're caught in that trap, you think you're the only one. I had no idea that anyone else felt the way I did. I knew I wasn't at rock bottom. I knew there was absolutely no point in me reaching out for any help. I didn't need any help. I was not clinically pet. No one could have done anything with me, right? There was nothing that could be done in inverted commas in terms of seeking help medically, but I also knew I wasn't okay. And and I think useful to people, particularly the grey area drinking. And it was very focused on that social element, focused on that everyday element of drinking, how we can fall into the habit ourselves. Now, obviously, one of the things that I'm thinking about in terms of this episode is that social drinking and and where we get sucked into it as the result of um, the company we keep and the the job we do. And you've spent a long time in an industry where that's at the heart of it. I spent three months in that industry and I saw what it was like, you know, after what must have been two or three decades in that industry or more, then you'd have seen it even more so. So you must have been around a lot of heavy drinking during your entertainment career. Did that affect you personally? And how did you see it affect people who were close to you? Mm. Yeah, I I think it's true. You know, there obviously is uh, a huge amount of drinking and drugs and God knows what in the music industry and in the entertainment industry generally. I did see a lot of it. I'm quite grateful that you know, when I was obviously very young and I was actually a really quite insecure person. And so I somehow knew deep down that if I were to lose control in inverted commas, the game would be up. I I didn't have supportive parents or anyone who would pick up a safety net, really. So I remember back then thinking, I actually can't allow myself to ever get out of control. So I never took a, a sniff of anything ever (laughs) literally Uh, not because I was holier than thou but because I was scared you know but of course I'm grateful for that now and I didn't over drink back then but yes there was a lot of it going around of course there was everything was free for all of my years in you know sort of radio and the music industry it's pretty much free drinks whenever you want it so you can absolutely see how people start to get down the slippery slope 
But what I do think is interesting that I've realized over the year in more recent years is that it ain't just the entertainment industry. It's pretty much every industry. You ask a bunch of doctors about the medical profession oh, yes. and how they can yeah. take a drink. You ask teachers, right, and professors how they like a drink. I mean, it's 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 rife. It's everywhere. It's in our culture, it's so normalized that alcohol is everywhere. It's that glue that has to stick everything together. It's celebrations, it's commiserations, it's, and everything in between. It's just our culture. And of course, industries end up making it their focus. Now I'm a little bit older and wiser. I realize it's just completely, absolutely rubbish. I'm not here trying to preach prohibition, by the way, not at all. But my thing is that I would encourage people to just ask themselves, could my life be better physically and emotionally without the booze? Now, if the answer is, well, no, you know, I have an avocar every Christmas, whatever the hell that is, that custard thing, you know, or no, I have a, you know, a, a shandy every couple of months, then fine. <laughs> no problem. But if when I ask that question, a little voice says, oh, God, yeah, then do something about it because your life will be so much better. And and what we actually want in our industries, in our workplaces, is for it to be as normal to choose not to drink alcohol as to drink alcohol. That's all we want. Equality, right? Equality. I mean, you wouldn't dream of rocking up at an event these days and there'd be zero options for you to eat if you're vegan or vegetarian. You'd be shocked and horrified. It would be not okay. And yet the amount of functions that you go to, I mean, bars and restaurants have got much better at it, but functions business events, even health and well-being awards events that I've been to, you know, natural living conferences, your options when you get to the function room are a jug of warm orange juice, maybe water, not always, but warm orange juice, you know, your water and beer and wine and champagne. I mean, how utterly bonkers, totally bonkers. I mean, when you think about all the celebs who are alcohol-free, if you've got Elton John rocking up to your business event or Russell Brand or, you know, AN other, Brad Pitt, if they're all coming along, are you happy to give them crappy orange juice? Doubt it, but they don't drink alcohol. We hope that you're enjoying this edition of the Connected Leadership Podcast. Don't forget, you can download your copy of Andy's book, Connected Leadership, from Amazon and other leading online bookstores. It's interesting you say that. I was at an event very recently. And as I say, I, I'm not a big drinker at all, and particularly not at business events. And I went to where they were serving and I said, could I have a glass? Uh, you know, what have you got that's non-alcohol? And they looked at me in shock's not the right word, but confusion. Mm, and yeah. they hadn't planned for it yeah. at all. No, they they very rarely do. And then if you go to anything where it's actually catered, so you know it's a sit down meal, and the the caterers have usually allocated half a bottle of wine per person. That's how it works, isn't it? With the with the money, usually uh, the per head count, they factor in half a bottle of wine. So then when you say, "Well, I'm not drinking," what non alcoholic alternatives do you have? They'll they'll go off and talk to someone. They'll come back and go, "Well, we could do you an elderflower uh, cocktail or an elderflower cordial." Oh, that'd be lovely. Thank you. That's fourteen fifty. You have to be kidding me, right? So I now say to people, make it a dietary requirement. Yeah. Put it when you accept. You let them know, just as you would if you were vegan or vegetarian. You let them know you are alcohol free and you would like fabulous 
grown-up alternatives to drink. And if they need any recommendations, you're very happy to supply them. Otherwise, you want to bring your own and not pay corkage. There's a couple of things I want to pick up from what you were saying before. So you talked about it's not just um, the entertainment industry, and you gave a couple of examples. And I'm sure, as you say, it's so many industries now. I've worked in a number of industries, and, you know, the Friday afternoon pub after work is part of the culture or whatever it might be. Uh, I smiled when you said doctors because I remember at university the the medical students had quite the reputation Mm. And they had their, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Their, their own bar that actually got shut down um, because wow. of what went on in there. And the excuse given was that they're under a lot more pressure than the rest of us. And, the, I mean, the examples you gave, me- doctors, teachers, and so forth, are high-pressure environments, and alcohol is associated with a pressure valve, a pressure release. Mm. It, it is, yeah. but, but, but there's a huge irony there because alcohol actually is a depressant. Yeah. Alcohol actually will not help to chill you out it will it will numb you of course it will but then you know if I knocked you over the head with a hammer that probably numb you out too neither are going to be advantageous to your body (laughs) so so as as a well-being expert what are the better alternatives when you're in such a high pressure environment and you just want to get your release from the week at work Mm. well I mean of course this is the thing isn't it when we reach for a drink it's the question to ask yourself is not is what is it you really desire you know it's that think feel act cycle we have the thoughts you know because we want to create certain feelings we want to feel a certain way and then we take action and reach for a drink and usually we don't bother to put the pause in and actually reflect but if we did we would probably be able to identify that what's really going on is not that we desire a glass of alcohol because no one ever does really. I mean, you you give a child alcohol, they usually cough and spit, you know, it tastes horrible. Absolutely tastes horrible. If we get used to it, of course we do, but it's not actually the alcohol we want. It's the feeling that we remember or we assume we associate that it gives us. We want the associations around alcohol and that's why we reach for the drink. So when we can put the pause in and ask ourselves, What is the feeling that actually I'm really trying to create here? I mean, a good tip is to put the word halt in first, H-A-L-T. So to start with, ask yourself, is it actually that I'm hungry? So often we we just need some proper food, some nourishment. I I used to reach for the wine all the time when it's actually I was just hungry, but I'm making the kids tea and I can't make our dinner till later. So, you know, I'll just load up with wine. So ask if you're hungry, ask yourself if you're angry. We reach for booze when we're really fed up. Um, Ask yourself if you're lonely and that's where connection comes in or if you're tired. And of course, there's a better way to deal with all of those. Go eat some food. You know, if you're angry, go and punch a cushion or go for a run. If you're lonely, connect. That's why we've got, you know, groups like the one I run, the Sober Club. And if you're tired, have a goddamn nap, right? There are always so many better ways of dealing with it. If you're feeling stressed out and anxious and you just really want to be uh, out of your head in inverted commas for a while, then there are just so many more healthier ways to achieve that. And you've got to find out what it is for you. So, Over time, you get really good at realizing we all need resources. We all need our self-care resources, our resources that work for us, that lift our spirits, even if only for a short time. I used to think that the only thing that I could do, which would give me a, in inverted commas, treat or release, was to go and drink a vat of wine. You know, I now realize that when I'm in a funk, then 
there are many other ways of dealing with that. I can go for a walk. I can go and meditate for 15 minutes. I can have a bath with essential oils. I can go and bake something. I could, you know, whatever the hell it is for you. And at, at the beginning, part of you will be saying, well, that won't cut it. But you know what? Over time, you start to realize the joy in simple little things. And you become so much more balanced when you haven't got, you know, the alcohol racing around the bloodstream telling you that you need more, 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 you know, bigger, better, faster, more. So it's about finding ways of managing stress and anxiety in a much healthier way. In addition, of course, you absolutely can have an alcohol-free drink. Why not? My phrase is keep the ritual, change the ingredients. So if it is that you've gotten in from work and it's a lovely sunny day and people are sitting in the garden and you want to have a drink of something, what's the problem? There's no problem. You can absolutely have a drink of something in a lovely glass. You don't want to be there with a cup of tea when everyone else is chinking glasses. You're grown up. So have a lovely wine glass. Don't know why it has to be called a wine glass, but there you go. <laughs> have a lovely glass and have something fabulously alcohol-free in it. So you've partly answered my next question, actually, because, um, you know, we've talked a lot about the social glue that alcohol is considered to provide. Um, mm. and, and many people feel that they're compelled in some ways, particularly more junior people. There's an expectation that they're going to join clients and colleagues for drinks to cement a relationship. And, and they feel that pressure. And there yeah. are people who either don't want to drink that much or they can't drink that much because of perhaps their religion or personal choice who feel excluded from that environment. So there was a couple of things there in, in, in your earlier answer. I said there were, there were a couple of things I wanted to pick up on. One of those is about being in control. And one of the things that I've always said, I, I've seen too many people make idiots of themselves at professional mm. events because they got carried yeah. away with free alcohol. And yeah. one of my rules of thumb to make it easy for people is always drink at least one to two drinks behind the pace of the others. Um, so at least you have that element more control, assuming a similar level of, of capacity. But how can people just say no politely without mm. feeling excluded and yeah. still feel that those relationship building opportunities are there for them? You know, a, a greater uh, availability of non-alcoholic alternatives that you've just referenced would be part of the answer. But what other, if that's not there, how do we still go mm. along and join in those bonding experiences without standing out as the teetotal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, number one, organisations and workplace event organisers or whatever have a really big responsibility to stop this assumption that everybody drinks. You know, I've heard people, I've had sober club members who've said they've been told in not so many words from their boss, maybe they start a new job, they're told in not so many words, you're expected to drink and keep up with the lads. It just has to stop. It actually has to stop. It's utterly ridiculous. That just cannot carry on. There needs to be much more awareness of this now. It's really time. And that lovely phrase, alcohol is the only drug we have to justify not taking. And that's yeah. the reality because it is a drug. Let's not sugarcoat it. Yeah, it's legal. Yeah, we all do it or did it, but it is a drug. And actually, when you take into consideration everything, harm to the economy, harm to relationships, harm to the, you know, everything, it's one of the number one most harmful drugs. So let's be really clear. It's utterly crazy that we have to be justifying not 
drinking. And that's what's got to change. So it needs to be made much easier from above, as it were. And, and when anyone, when any business, any organization is putting a function on or whatever they're doing, exactly as I said about the food, of course, they're going to have some options for the vegetarians. Well, I would hope they are. You know, even if they're having a barbecue, you'll have something else on offer. You need to do exactly the same for the people who are not drinking proper grown-up drinks. Choices are huge. If that isn't possible for whatever reason, then, well, my recommendations for the individual are to actually prep ahead and make sure that whoever's uh, getting the catering in knows that these, these are your requirements. If they can't do it, that you want to bring your own. You don't want to be charged corkage, but you're very happy to bring your own. And can you use their fridge? That shouldn't be a problem. And then literally, in terms of how you deal with other people, it depends how well you know them. I always say if you're going out with friends or colleagues and you've stopped drinking, because so many people are people pleasers, ridiculously, they sometimes end up drinking just because they don't want someone else to feel bad, right? How bonkers is that? But in order to compensate for that, I always say, give them a heads up. So if you're going out with friends and they maybe haven't seen you for a while, you've stopped drinking, you're really anxious about what the, you know, how the hell it's going to go, give them a heads up, drop them a message, a text and just say, oh, by the way, I'm not drinking. So there's more for you. Now, you might want to tell the truth. You might want to say, I'm off the booze. It's making me feel much less anxious. I'm feeling great. There's not a lot people can say to that. Or you might want to fib and that's fine too. I'm on medication. I've had some dental work. I'm on medication. It doesn't really matter, but find a way of saying it. But then add in one more sentence, which is something along the lines of, don't have to worry about me because I'm good. I've found a great kombucha or got a great alcohol-free beer. See you soon. So you've said your piece. And then when you get to the bar, of course, that will be ignored. And whoever it is will say, oh, come on, you know, don't be so boring. You want a beer, right? You know, you, you, want, you, you want a drink? And the answer is, thank you. I'd absolutely love a drink. I'll have a sparkling water or I'll have an alcohol-free beer. And then you change the subject. And really, it's nobody else's business. And I really recommend that people in the early weeks and months, until you really find your feet, I mean, of course, I no longer care. But in the early weeks and months, you can be feeling very fragile. So when other people start questioning you, just say, you know what? Ask me in six months. By the way, how was your holiday? It's none of their business. Yeah. And, and you know, I've been through that as someone who socialises a lot in heavy drinking cultures, going to football, going to concerts and so forth. My friends have had to learn to put up with it and learn that's me. How, how can it matter what you're putting yes. in your mouth? But, you, but as you say, <laughs> they, they take it personally. Other people take it personally. Yeah, the sober shamers. Well, because yeah. you're shining a light on their yeah. behaviour. Yeah, That's really what it's yeah. about. And it is almost as if by you not joining in, you're spoiling their fun. Exactly. Um, that's and, that's how. Well, it's the same in restaurants, isn't it? When yeah. people go, oh, well, if you're not having a dessert, I can't yeah. have a dessert. Yeah. Well, how does that work? <laughs> Yeah, I might be guilty of that one. Janie, <laughs> 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 um, this is the Connected Leadership Podcast, and, and you mentioned, you talked about connection earlier, and in, I think in your TED Talk mm. you say the opposite of addiction is connection. So let's finish by talking about that. Um, mm. I, I think I get that on a level, but I'd love you to expand on it. The opposite of addiction is connection. What role yeah. does connection play in helping you? Um, well, that, and how that, does that being phrase, sober help you connect? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, that phrase was coined by Johan Harry in his TED Talk, and I found it to be 100% the thing that makes the difference. Because most of us, if we are drinking too much, will have been around the block a few times. Over the course of my many years waking up at 3am, I would have a couple of months off. I think I stopped for about eight months once. And then I went back to it, you know, because the voice in the head said, oh, well, you obviously, you don't have a problem. You're clearly not an alcoholic. You can have one now. And then I'm straight back down the slippery slope. But the point is, I had lots of times when I wasn't drinking before I went back again. So I asked myself, what made the difference the last time, as it were, for my last day one, five and a half years ago, what was it made the difference? And I really believe it was getting myself connected with people who had been there, done it, got the t-shirt, having something aspirational, something to look up to, as it were, someone who could, well, and ideally lots of people who can inspire me and who can understand that, yeah, I feel like absolute crap at the moment and I feel raw and fragile and who the hell am I anyway? I hadn't stepped into my sober identity and you know I was. Someone to just say, you know what, it's completely normal. It's okay, sweetheart. And yeah, you will get leg cramps, have some magnesium or whatever the hell, you know, and then, and by the way, this is how I'm feeling now, a few months down the line. And by the way, being sober makes you brave and you're going to have even more energy and, and, and on and on. So it's having that, that connection with people who've been there or are going through it at the same time. You know, it's so important. And I was able to get a little bit of connection at the beginning. I came across some groups, some Instagram, you know, sober fluences, as the expression goes. And I started to realize, oh, my God, there are other people that feel the same way. I had no idea before, no idea. And suddenly, here are other people who are just like me, and they're also working and running businesses and, and looking after kids. And you know what? They're living their life without booze. So it must be possible. And getting connected just made all the difference, checking into podcasts and and then going and meeting people in real life. And I've found that since I've been sober, I've made just some of the best connections I've ever made in my life, really. Because you know what? I know this is going to sound, yeah, I don't know if you'll believe this, but when you're sober, you're more kind. You really are. Yeah. And you really, really want to support other people. <laughs> it's just a thing. I suppose it's that give back thing. So in the Sober Club, the community that I run, was a completely disparate group. And some people are on day one or they're thinking about stopping drinking. And other people have been sober for 10 years. Because it's never about not drinking. It's always about the everything else, isn't it? It's the everything else. It's the living your best life. But it's just amazing in there because someone will pop up and they'll go, oh, do you know, I'm really worried. I've got my daughter's wedding and, oh, you know, is it going to be rude not to? And, oh, what do I do? And, and no one's ever judgmental. They just come on the post and they'll go, oh, God, I wish I'd have been able to be sober at my, <laughs> you know, rather than ending up in the gutter the way I did. And then by the end of the conversation, it's, oh, thank you so much for inspiring me again. So, yeah, it's a long-winded answer, but connection is really key. Because also, just to add this piece, you know, it's another level of accountability when you're connected. If you're not connected, as I wasn't for the first 10 years of trying to do this, you just have that conversation with yourself or with the wine witch who says, well, that's fine, won't hurt, just have one. When you're connected and there's that layer of accountability, like, oh, God, if I do decide to, you know, go back to drinking, I've got a post on that bloody group tomorrow and tell them I've drunk again. Like, oh, maybe I won't. So it's, it's it, worth it for that. In, in my last book, Just Ask, 
we shared at least a couple of stories that spring to my mind of very similar communities. One for the trying to conceive community for parents yeah. who were struggling with IVF and so forth, particularly through Instagram, but incredibly supportive. Another for plus-size runners yeah. who, who were embarrassed to go out running because they'd get heckled and so forth, but having other people saying, well, I'm going through the same thing. So this is just another example and a great one yeah. of that community yeah. of where people go, know what you're going through and yeah. help you with that connection. I, I do have to, I, I, I keep saying to myself, Andy, don't say these things, but I can't resist. <laughs> it, I, I love the, the, the term sobrefluencer. Um, <laughs> I know, it's hilarious, uh, isn't it? <laughs> and, and I just have to know, I have to know if the opposite of it is a gymfluencer. <laughs> uh, Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Janie, before you go, you shared the podcast details at, at the beginning. You've mentioned the Sober Club a few times. Is that the best place for people who, who want to know more to come and find out more? Yeah, sure, sure. Anyone can follow me on social media. I'm very easy to find, just at Janie Lee Grace. And yeah, check out thesoberclub.com. There's some blogs and various things on there. And then there's a membership community. Yeah, I'm easy to find. And I'm always happy to answer questions. You know, I know how I, fe- I, I used to feel. I used to, I used to want someone to just answer a really simple question for me. <laughs> so I'm always happy to do that. Brilliant. Janie, I'm off to celebrate with an elderflower cocktail. Cool, um, cool. <laughs> Have uh, it in a nice glass. It, yeah, in a, <laughs> in a non-wine glass. Yeah. Um, and thank you so much for joining me on the Connected Leadership Podcast. It's been great to chat. Thank you. And uh, Thank you so much to Janie for joining me. You know, one of the things that I have said for uh, many, many years in my talks and I've, probably in my books is that it's frightening how many bottles of wine and whiskey are given away every year as thank you gifts to teetotalers. And this does start at, at a cultural level, that expectation that everything revolves around alcohol, particularly that bonding experience. And that's why I wanted to have that conversation. I've been aware that Janie doing this for a while I try and keep the Connected Leadership podcast focused to a fair degree on it, on its premise that the relationships we build around us um, play a role in our success and, and not go too far off of that. But there is a clear fit. So if you've listened today and it's helped you personally because you feel that you do need to make that move towards sobriety, then I'm delighted it has. Our focus is on just empowering you to say, I can still build relationships without having to sort of fall into the trap of boozing with everyone else. But also, if you're a leader in an organization, look at the culture, look at the example you set. You know, a lot of what Janie said was about providing alternatives and normalizing not drinking. And are you doing that or are you pushing this narrative that we connect over booze to the exclusion of people who can't or don't want to to drink? So that's why. Um, we had this conversation today. I hope you found it interesting. As I always ask you, please do post a review and a rating if you've enjoyed it and share it on social media, help spread this message. You know how to follow up with Janie, please do. And whatever you do, join us for episode 201 of the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you found this valuable, please subscribe, tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media, and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great Connected Leadership tips.